0: Where Dreams Come From is a podcast featuring successful people from around the world who have pursued their dreams to arrive at a station in life. I'm your host, Sanjeev Chatterjee. I'm a professor of cinema and journalism, and in my creative life, I make documentary films. I started this podcast to explore what it takes for people to follow their dreams, even while being true to who they are, at least who they believe they are. My guest, Jeremy Sherman, set out fairly early in life to be a hippie. He now asserts that science is his spiritual path. Possessing a naturally questioning mind, Jeremy abandoned the quest for undefined enlightenment, to seek out answers to higher truths by applying scientific methods. Working closely with Harvard and Berkeley neuroscientist and biological anthropologist Terence Deacon, he seeks to explain the basis on which biological organisms aspire or try. He told me that this aspect of life, trying or aspiring or dreaming, so to speak, distinguishes living organisms from machines. It has names, but little in the
1: way of explanation.
0: Jeremy Sherman, welcome to Where Dreams Come From.
1: A pleasure to be here.
0: Tell me a little bit in the way of uh, your upbringing and where you were born, the family circumstances.
1: I grew up in, a, uh, in an upper middle class Jewish family uh, in the 1960s. I'm 65 now, um, uh, living on the south side of Chicago um, at a time when uh, things were flourishing uh, both for my family and also it seemed for the world um, that is I had high expectations um, that I would say over the course of my life have been sobered up some um, uh, I sometimes say jokingly that um, that the the overall arch of my arc of my life has been to recognize that uh, the idea that we become, Adults, mature, rational beings, um, uh, it's something of a fantasy. That is, we were all in diapers not that long ago, and it shows. We still act like that around the edges. I am, I am amazed by what people can do. I'm also horrified by what people can do. But I grew up um, in a very hopeful family. My father and grandfather together had founded a large company that was doing extremely well, um, it's still around, Midas Mufflers. Uh, and my father was a man full of dreams. He was um, he was exotic for someone in the business world in mainstream America. Um, he had been a uh, a bagpipe player, an oboe player, a concert pianist. We had three Steinway uh, pianos in the home. He wanted us all to become great musicians. He was in a way uh, getting uh, exercising. His frustration about having been in some ways held back from his creativity by his own parents, um, who were much more mainstream, they were of a different generation, they were uh, members of the Jewish. A uh, community that in a way was trying to become as mainstream as possible, uh, especially after World War II. Um, so when he got interested in bagpipes at the age of 13 um, uh, they and and made his own set of bagpipes at 13, uh, they hid them from him. He, and so when I was growing up, he wanted us to have lessons in everything that he wished he had started earlier. Um, so I was living out his dreams for a long time. Growing up, I went to a uh, Orthodox Hebrew school, um, uh, which was not a place where dreams were encouraged. It was a surprisingly dark place, and yet you can understand it. I was mostly being taught by people who had been traumatized by World War II. Um, It did not make me enthusiastic about religion, certainly not about the Jewish religion. And at about age 13, I broke away from the family in, uh, in uh, with with the, the, uh, the permission and acceptance of my parents, I went off to a school, uh, a boarding school to be independent of my highly competitive families. Indulge me
0: for a second. So, earlier you said that the traditional uh, Jewish school was a dark place. I take that to mean that probably that was a place where life was seen as a step-by-step process, not to get too far ahead of yourself.
1: Yes, it, yes, I would say so. In this respect, and it's something I would say is true of a lot of schools, a lot of young children are curious. They're inquiring about the world. And they enter school, and they're basically told, uh, you can't really as- ask those questions until you have been tooled up in all of these facts. And I see the value of that. But one of the effects of it is that many people leave high school saying, sorry, I asked. That is, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know I was going to have to do all of these prerequisites before I could cultivate my inquiring mind. So in a way, my schooling was really a good antidote for me that way because it freed me up to follow my nose. I had whole days free. This after 13 years when I had four hours a day of Hebrew, four hours a day of English, came home, had to do an hour's worth of practice on piano, hour's worth of practice on violin. One of my brothers still has the Steinway piano that we had from the home. And on the lid of the piano, there are teeth marks that I left there at the age of about eight or nine when in frustration about having to practice music I didn't care about at all, I had bit down on the keyboard.
0: As a, as a follow-up to, to that question, do you think that there are some children that may benefit from the step-by-step and others who just it doesn't work for them?
1: Oh, completely. Yes. No. So this is one of the challenges. I do not think there's a formula for child rearing. I have three children of my own ages forty, uh, 31 to 41. They are radically different. Each one of them has a completely different personality, which does make challenging the notion that you are a product of your parenting. That is, I assumed that my children came to the world with different temperaments. There are some who are, who, who end up mastering skills because they were taken through the step by step process before they could really question or, rebel against it and they end up very tooled up by a certain age. there are other kids like me who were not going to respond well to that as a result it was a good thing when when I was I was freed from that kind of discipline
0: the discovery of who you were if I am reading this correctly came at about 40
1: that's a that's right at about 37 or 40. Um, Buckminster Fuller, uh, the philosopher and inventor, um, had a line that I thought was resonant with that. He says, uh, what were you about to do before they told you, you'd have to go out and make a living? Now, the paradox is that I was not told I had to go out and make a living. And yet I still felt that burden. And it took me till about 37. The way I think of it is that I was like a fish played out on high, uh, on, uh, what do you call it? High test fishing line. That is, I had tugged against my own nature for a long time, trying to be something i wasn't and by about 37 my parents had both died and i think this was one of the reasons why it happened is that there was no longer a sense that the money i had inherited was belonged to someone else i could i, I could also begin to occupy some of the pursuits that my father uh, had followed out in his life. He was such a polymath. He had so many different interests. I didn't begin to list the interests he he had. For example, we had 500 finches and hummingbirds flying around in large rooms in our home. He was a total character. He was also a radical activist who had worked with Ralph Nader and Saul Alinsky in the Chicago 7 while being the president of Midas Mufflers. So when he died, I could start to occupy some of those places without fearing uh, you could say, edipal competition uh, with him. But there was also a way in which I just realized, I, st- I, I finally relaxed enough to see what I was good for, which is a key factor in coming up with dreams. From what you're telling me, I take it to
0: mean that at
1: 37 or so, uh,
0: you had an evolution of your dream.
1: Yes, but, I, but it's interesting how it came about, and this, is, uh, this has things in common with dreaming itself, literal dreaming. So what happened for me around 37 was I had a midlife crisis. Um, one of, one consequence, I had been pouring uh, countless hours and dollars into this nonprofit organization that I had founded, National Nonprofit Environmental and Peace Organization. And um, we were a darling of the funders. They loved what we were doing because we were one of the few groups that was having grassroots effectiveness, it seemed. We had 75 chapters. But I was unimpressed by the progress because I didn't want to do it. It was not just a gesture. I wanted to actually see leverage change. So I had moved on from that to other things, and in the meantime – uh, I would say that we were the, the the progressive movements, the liberal movements, were entering a stage much like fibrilla- fibrillation. That is, you couldn't find the pulse for the movement. Before that, there were a few clear causes. Suddenly, the problems were mounting in such a way that it made for a, a disparate and diffuse movement, and I couldn't find the pulse. So that was one thing. My marriage was falling apart and my firstborn son and he was a very sobering effect on me was proving to be what we would now say is mentally ill he was he had he had real problems and no quantity of me teaching him the right and righteous way seemed to be helping so all of that made it so i could no longer hold on to the dreams that had stabilized me before i became what i'd call conviction impaired that is, my convictions became impaired. Well, well, what do we know about dreams? What do we know about hallucinogenic um, uh, drugs? We know that what happens is that there's a breakdown in the normal boundaries or distinctions. Uh, just as in dreams, you have these, these things that you wouldn't think of in life because they are they're incoherent. And yet there's a special, there's a fundamental coherence. Now, these days I work with a neuroscientist who describes dreaming as a lot like uh, if you had a uh, sandcastle that you made near the shore and the waves lap up on it, and all of the details get lost, but the core gets reinforced. So it's a kind of purging of details. And there was something about that, for like that, about my own process of uh coming apart at about 37 in this midlife crisis that enabled me to reconstruct myself in a way that turned out to be way better than any of my dreams.
0: But tell me a little bit more about what you discovered at 37 through this personal crisis.
1: So one core principle was this thing that people are not as easily changed as we'd like to think when we think in you could say, in the mindset of woke movements. Woke is an idealization. And it's a funny one, too, because it's called woke. Uh, I wake up every morning, but I'm drowsy the next night. No, the idea behind woke, and I would include uh, the Trump movement as a woke movement. I would say the left has its versions. I would say Protestantism. All the great religions were woke movements. Buddhism has its own version of woke movement in the, the concept of the sudden school, that you wake up to something and you then know it and act on it from there on out. So it's a happily ever after instantaneous realization. There's even a little bit of it in Plato's cave story where you overcome delusion. I once was lost and now I'm found. And what I was discovering was, no, I I once was lost and now I'm blind is at least as likely. Um, And that a better move is I once was lost. Apparently, I'm someone who can get lost. That is, I became skeptical in a way that drew me to science, drew me to evolutionary biology, all of my old belief systems, which included a lot of Buddhism and some Hinduism too, as translated through a guy like Ram Das uh, These were guys who were doing American version, versions of uh, of of Eastern philosophy. Um, they stopped working for me. I realized they weren't life-sized. They weren't going to get me through life. At least the American versions, they... I, I, I said that they were smarma, smarmy dharma. They were wishful thinking. They were sugar coated. They were not real enough. And I realized also that um, that anxiety is a huge driver for that kind of behavior. That is, you the more the dirtier you feel, the more you'll fall for idealizations of people living pure, clean lives. And that wasn't going to work for me. I decided to roll up my sleeves, get really interested. I got really interested in evolutionary biology and our imperfections. And part of this happened through reading some fiction that just that just depicted what conflicted, complicated monkeys we humans are. The work,
0: is it categorized as uh, spiritual or scientific?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. It is It is a scientific approach to what have been traditionally uh, spiritual or philosophical questions. And um, so I end up working with a bunch of people who work in theology or spirituality and philosophy, and yet our methods are radically different because I actually think there's, there's a parallel problem in the sciences and in spirituality right now. That is, I could describe my the part of me that is the source of my trying, I could describe that in spiritual terms. I could call it my vital force. I could call it my soul, or I could use more uh, academic terms for it. Um, I could name it uh, my agency, my interiority. Uh, there There are more technical sounding names, or even just motivation, appetite, they sound a little drier than soul and spirit. But naming is not explaining. That is... Basically what both the spiritual and the scientific people these days will tend to do is they'll say, "Well, I see you trying, therefore I'm going to posit something inside of you that is the source of trying and I'll give it a name. And we're saying, no, naming is not explained. We have to explain with no smoke and mirrors how this how trying starts and I do. But here's the way it does connect to spirituality. is that unlike a lot of academics and scientists, I live and breathe this stuff i mean it is my spiritual path
0: since your youth the dream was to change the world perhaps uh, through being a good person and uh, you know somehow transmitting that goodness into the world to a finding a scientific approach after a kind of a let's say block in the road where, as you said, things fell apart and then you reconstructed it. And the new dream then was to chase defining motivation, defining trying.
1: Uh, That's a small part of the dream. Here's here's what it turned out to be uh, for me. Um, I have what my dad referred to as the courage of my insignificance. By now, I look around and notice how many people are trying to change the world. I also notice what tends to get popular, and um, I would suggest that what tends to get popular is what I'd call cliché Guevara. That is, it sounds revolutionary, but it's actually just a reaffirmation of the comforting thoughts that people already have. Um so given my limited ability to affect things in this world, you know, the world changed radically and we're, this, what we're doing right now is part of this that is now we all have the enticing prospect of changing the world because we all can produce podcasts that go out and get and could conceivably be seen by millions of people. That's the good news. The bad news is so can everybody else. <laughs> so what's happened for me is my my ground state is I am here taking notes on the whole ball of wax and us in it. And I'm, that is the universe and us in it. My favorite thing to do is to have good conversations, thoughtful conversations with someone as we're doing here, as though we're sitting on the front porch of the universe, observing it and us in it. I said that thing about packing slips before about how we don't know who we are individually when we're born. I would say the same thing's true about humankind as well. So where have I gone for my grounding for an exploration, taking notes on what we are? I could go to many different sources. There are many, for example, sacred texts. My bet is on science, which is I consider a peculiarly stubborn attempt to think clearly. I'd say it's an attempt to find natural explanations for all natural phenomena. That's where I go. And I have, I have questions that go from cradle to grave from our origins at the cradle of life to our grave situation today. And the questions are multiple, but one of them is what is trying? Because we're the first things to try. Organisms are the first things to try. Um, how does language change how humans try? What's the behavior that is most dangerous from people? That's the psychoproctology piece. Um, Another one you could say is, uh, how do we deal with life's fundamental tough judgment calls? There, are, uh, So there are ju- tough judgment calls we that we are strapped with lifelong. An example would be the serenity prayer. I would say that that one actually has been with us since the origins of life. That is, organisms have to do work to transform their environment for their benefit, but they also have to know what they can transform and need to adapt to by accommodating them so the courage the serenity to change uh, to accept things the courage to change things that's almost a definition of adaptation
0: do you think that people who don't have the material means are restricted in dreaming
1: they're not restricted in dreaming this is a function of language language affords us the ability to dream up anything that's part of the danger of it is that people can dream All sorts of things whereby they become legends in their own mind, instead of doing productive work in the world. Um, But if you're talking in practical terms, I have colleagues who um, who get by in the day. These are these are generally colleagues who work so that they can engage in serious play in their spare time. So there are people who have, uh, let's say, an example would be a computer programmer, because it's often useful to be able to make enough money that in a short amount of time that you don't come home exhausted and uh, spent. So you have some free time for other things. But I have research colleagues who have day jobs like that. I have research colleagues who are academics. Uh, here's an example. I have a friend who works in Singapore. He's, he teaches ESL. English is a second language in Singapore. And at night he works in biosemiotics, which is one of the areas I work in. So I know him as a colleague from that work. We, we, we don't end up talking about ESL. Um, so there's that version of it. But I, I am very interested in expectation management um, and also in escapism as a human necessity. So I believe that there are limitations on what we can do. I believe that that if you don't have much means... Um, it's going to be much more unlikely that you will achieve uh, the, stat- the status of Jeff Bezos. Uh, some do. He was born and he was uh, his his father wasn't around when he grew up. He was a uh, you know uh, he was a uh, but but it's very rare. So I'm also interested in what I call optimal illusion: how to kid yourself in ways that help more than hurt. So even though I'm I have a very lucky life. I'm still living the anxiousness of a human life. I think language makes human life extremely anxious.
0: In this conversation, uh, when we are talking about dreams, uh, in your estimation, are we talking about uh, escapism? Are we talking about aspirations? Are we talking about planning? Are we talking about, uh, about, uh, let's say, uh, anxieties that drive us?
1: My answer would be yes, and it's important to distinguish between them. Um, uh, so all of that was what I was assuming we're talking about. And we're really, in a way we're talking about what psychologists, social psychologists would call the aspirational gap, the gap between what we have and what we aspire to have. And it would be very different for different people. They would, though there would be commonalities, of course, about what people would want. Um, and, and they'd also be context dependent. That is for some people, the dream would be, uh, uh, going to heaven after they die as if this was a test for some people it would be having enough money that they could breathe for a second because they're holding down three jobs it's it's different for different people um and and how you manage them is interesting and one of the th- so what I meant by escapism so escapism sounds negative um and and there and yet in some realms escapisms are treated as, the holiest of holy—that is, there are religious versions of escapism that that uh, that people hold as sanctified—and what I'm trying to do is demote those sanctified versions of escapism to an elevated status for all escapism. In what ways have you been able to apply it to yourself? So I happen to be an atheist. Uh, that kind of goes along with the uh, being a scientist. That is. Uh, if you're if you're working in science, and it's not just your career, but it's actually what you live and breathe. It's in this paradoxical sense, science is my spiritual path. Uh, if you could posit supernatural, magical forces to explain something. What couldn't you explain that way? I mean, I could say the ball rolls down the hill because a magical hand, an invisible hand, pushes it down there. So you just, that's why I say that science is a campaign. It's not the only campaign in the world, but it's a campaign to find natural explanations for all natural phenomena. So uh, though I'm an atheist, don't get me wrong. I'm as delusional as the next guy. I've got my biases, my appetites, my anxieties. And I noticed that the where we do optimal illusion best is in fiction.
0: Jeremy Sherman, thank you very much for taking time with me. Jeremy Sherman was born with the means as well as some of the freedoms and tools that allowed him to delve into the meaning of life. He has indeed made a mission of it. As far as I can see, Jeremy's dream is grand. He seeks to bridge the great divide between scientific reason and the elusive spirit. After our conversation, Jeremy emailed me a poem he had written back in 2005 under the title, To Whom It May Concern. The following is an excerpt. Well, I can't completely, but have made a game of it that tilts my yearning towards perennial truths. Not in my time to get my truths across, but in yours, If, in yours now, after better and worse times, my blunt and heavy truths proved inescapable, then commonplace. And with your still greater means of searching, one among you should find that these relics of ancient speculation and note in passing that I was prescient. I will not be there to glow. My yearning deferred then satisfied, but I will have won my game of choice. Today's episode was edited by Scott Alborn. For Media for Change, I'm Sanjeev Chatterjee.